everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast, where two longtime fans discuss YouTube music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience, and the perception of YouTube and cultural consciousness. Yeah, Melody, you and I came of age with YouTube. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. Now, Melody, I mentioned context, right? Now, context is big for us on this podcast. You hate U2? Fine. But if you weren't there as it unfolded, you might have missed what was at stake and why decisions were made. So with that in mind, today... Melody, we're going to talk about U2's third album, War. Very much a make it or break it moment. Right. And let's go ahead and set the scene. Um, the band has pooled their money together to rent a small cottage in Hoth, which is a seaside, uh, north side Dublin neighborhood. Um, and this is where they'll work together during the writing and recording of War. Um, it's August 1982, and Bono and Allie are off on their honeymoon. Adam and Larry are off on their own holidays, um, and Edge, who is still full of apprehension about whether he should continue into you, continue in YouTube, if this is the best way he can be of service in the world, um, he also has great doubts about his abilities as a songwriter. He decides to stay in Dublin and work on songs. Um, Edge has described one particular day during this two-week period that became a watershed moment for himself personally as a songwriter, as well as for the future direction of the band. Adding to his anxiety and self-doubts about music, he has this massive fight with his girlfriend about not wanting to go on vacation when they have a chance. And then, Bill... <laughs> Finally a breakthrough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Edge pours all his anger and frustration into a simple but striking, descending, arpeggio chord pattern, and a spark goes off. Maybe a calling. This new song should be about a subject the band has been avoiding, but could no more, the tinderbox known as The Troubles. Now, I will argue... Writing Sunday Bloody Sunday, especially how they chose to write Sunday Bloody Sunday, is probably the most crucial moment in U2's history. Because when you consider what was at stake for Edge and for the band, who were nearly dropped by Island Records during the October tour, and with their contract up after this next record, I believe Sunday Bloody Sunday is U2's most important song. Right. It's important to remember that this is a band that has come back from the October tour out of money. They were barely able to pay for their crew's final wages. Paul McGinnis has said that he couldn't pay the bill on the credit card that he'd used to finance the tour, and it got taken away. The band were flat broke, hence living and working together in a small cottage. Also, apparently, so that Bono and Allie will have a place to live when they return from their honeymoon. Right. So let's pick up the story. Bono returns from his honeymoon, and Edge plays him what he has, including even the first line of the song, which he's written, that goes, don't talk to me about the rights of the IRA, UDA. Hmm, incendiary, Bono thinks. <laughs> me thinks too. <laughs> right. Now, Bono likes Edge's title, Sunday Bloody Sunday, using John Lennon's song of the same name and subject matter, and for clarification, there's actually a couple Bloody Sundays in Irish history, 
But both Lenin and what you two are talking about is January 30th, 1972. Right. Yes, this is when British soldiers fired on a civil rights march in the majority Catholic area of the bog side in Derry, killing 14 protesters. And this is a day stained in the memory of every Irishman. Bono then asks Edge if there's another way into this lightning rod of subjects, and he asks, could we contrast the Easter Rising of 1916 with the slump body of the Messiah at the time of the first Easter? Easter being a day of celebration for both Catholics and Protestants in the North and the South. And Melody, as you recall, Bono would go on to say Sunday Bloody Sunday is a day no Irishman can forget, but should forget. Yeah, and from this, they decide the way in on this most volatile of subjects is not by choosing sides, right? But by imploring the Irish to let go of the cycle of generational bitterness and hatred. Bono wrote in his autobiography that the band had talked for hours about the state of Ireland and about what Christ would make of the religion begun in his name. Um, Not much, Bono says, and he goes on to say, uh, Christianity seemed to have become the enemy of the radical Jesus of Nazareth. Was there any evidence that Jesus even wanted a church? Despite emerging shaken from our experience with Shalom, we were sure our faith could survive our faith. Our music, though, that was another matter. If we lost our purpose, our band was back to where it began, looking for a reason to exist, he said. Yeah, and it's Sunday Bloody Sunday that gives you two its reason to exist. And from this, they fashion a kind of militant pacifism that informs their milieu moving forward, uh, a way to be instruments of peace in a world at war with itself. And they would not be guided by any sect or fellowship, but now subtly, but no less so by the radical Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And, you know, it may have started with the writing of Sunday Bloody Sunday, but the whole of war is a seismic shift. U2's music, it moves from, you know, the the atmospheric and the inward looking to a tougher confrontational music with its face firmly turned outward. Um, Not only does the band take on the Irish troubles, but they examine other aspects of the geopolitical world that at that time was in a state of mass conflict and unrest. Um, embedded in the album are comments about the Cold War, military threats to mo- democracy, um, you know, and the, the paranoia of nuclear annihilation. It looks at the emotional toll, uh, not just at the geopolitical level, but at the societal and emotional level as well. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, this record wages war on many enemies, not only on those perpetuating the actual violence in the world, but on the cynical critics on those who blindly accepted the Reagan and Thatcher conservatism of the early 80s, and finally on their own contemporaries, making soulless, and as Bono would want to say, push-button wallpaper music. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, and I mean, in the album, it confronts and provides a dramatic alternative musically and lyrically to that glossy music that was filling up the British music charts at the time. You know, Um, remember, I mean, this is the time of new romantic music and synthesizer driven pop. Think uh, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Bananarama. I could go on and on. Um, and, And while this music, it was fun. It was mostly a shiny veneer reflecting, you know, a lot of lip gloss and eyeliner. Um, 
But with its stripped back sound uh, and aggressive sound, War aimed for a direct punch into that pretty face of British pop music. It was U2 leaning into their Irishness, full of brash aggression, passion, and emotions. Here, they are fully owning their otherness, their non-Britishness, their uncoolness, and use it fully to their advantage. Yeah. And Melody, I have to share, I, I just randomly pulled up, you know, like somebody had posted like on YouTube, just a, a random hour from MTV from 1982. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, imagine you two watching as they were making war in mid 82. And they're, you know, like Gloria comes on sandwiched between Human League and Der Kammerzah. I mean, they must have thought, are we alone in keeping rock and roll alive? <laughs> okay. Um, War was recorded from September to November 1982, again at Windmill Lane Studios, and again with Steve Lillywhite mostly producing. Right, but let's take a step back. Steve Lillywhite, of course, produced both Boy and October, but he had a rule. He doesn't produce more than two records of any one band, so he tells you two they should explore other options. Now, almost immediately after October's release, the band hatches a plan for the next record. They'd use a different producer for each song, or for a set of songs, to give them a varied sound for the next record. Which sounds eerily similar to what they've been doing the last few albums, Melody, and man, that has worked great! <laughs> it's worked so great. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, the names uh, of producers that are bandied about include Sandy Perlman, who produced The Clash's second record, Jimmy Destry of Blondie, Red Davies of Roxy Music. Um, then there's Jimmy Iovine, who reportedly really lobbied to get the job. Um, and let's see, Chris Thomas. And they even tried approaching Brian Eno, who said he wasn't interested, right? Right. And uh, so as for Sandy Perlman, no one seems to know what he worked on, but he was the first up with a session before the band played the Ritz in New York on the first leg of the October tour. Then they end up convincing Lily White to come back and do a one-off producing the A Celebration single that comes out in early 82. Right. And that's when they work after that with um, Jimmy Destry um, in a session in March of 1982 um, and they come away with an unreleased song, although you can hear it on YouTube if you want to. Um, and here, a little snippet, and it's called Be There, um, which if the band was looking for a more direct, aggressive sound, um, this wasn't it. So go ahead and take a listen. Okay, so then there's another song called Angels Too Tied to the Ground that, again, no one seems to know who produced it, but by the time it ends up on the War Deluxe release in 2008, Bono had added a new vocal to it. Again, not great. Here's a quick listen. Another collaboration happens in August 1982 with Bill Whelan, 
um, who is later of Riverdance fame, um, he produces The Refugee, which does end up on war and which we will talk about later during our song by song discussion. Right. But they don't jibe with Whelan. And this is where they convince Lily White to come back for one more go. But they tell Lily White, we don't want the big reverbs on the drums and vocals or the delays on the guitars. They want, you know, the bass chunky and the vocals and guitars in your face, more like The Clash. Now, this time, they'll take their time they need to ensure they don't end up with a lot of half-baked songs like on October. All right, enough beating up on October. We did enough of that, or you did enough of that. All right, episode. all right. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> okay. New Year's Day is released as a single ahead of the album on January 10th, 1983, um, with the B-side Treasure, Whatever Happened to Pete the Chop, um, an old song they revamped and re-recorded during the war sessions. Um, true story. I have to tell you this, though. Mm-hmm. When I, I got so excited when I first heard the New Year's Day single on KROQ back on the day it was released that I almost knocked myself unconscious um, by accidentally smashing my head into the floor. It was really ridiculous. Now, Melly, this is why I'm doing this podcast. I, I get to find out gems like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how in the world did this happen? I have to hear this. I was laying on the floor in a friend's house and the song comes on. I don't recognize the music, of course, because the music is so different. But as soon as Bono started singing, I immediately, and remember, I'm 15. I'm the rabid U2 fan. I'm the one that likes that weird Irish band and yeah. just was so excited, picked my head up, said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, it's them. Bam, mm-hmm. on the back of the floor. And, you know, stars were spinning around my head. It's true. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Love it. Uh, okay, so War is then released on February 28th, 1983 in the UK and the next day in the States. Big things are about to happen. Um, I remember taking two buses to go get War the day it was released uh, and, and, and just absolutely transfixed by it on the bus ride back. Did you really? I didn't know that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, barricaded myself in the room. Um, I mean, this is vinyl. I mean, that striking album cover, yeah. Peter Rowan, the, the cut on the lip. I mean, this was a big moment. Um, and so, uh, listen, Melody, let's hear how it sounded when you dropped the needle down and you heard this. I mean, there are moments I wish I could go back and re-experience. Um, the first time I heard this, I mean, come on. I'm pretty sure I listened to this probably 10 or 12 times uh, that first day, but that that intro is just otherworldly. Um, you know, I mentioned in the prior episode that, you know, every U2 record is a reaction to the last, you know, and they make that clear on the first track. But on Sunday, Bloody Sunday, I mean, the announcement is so striking and emphatic as it's ever been. I mean, this is a band that finally knows who it is. This is not just a reaction to October. It's a reaction to the banality of music in 1983. And it's really Larry's drums. I mean, I've been pretty hard on Larry up to this point. But those military drums, you know, that boldly announce war is going to be something very different. 
And as great as Edge's riff is that he came to him, you know, that little cottage in Houth, it's Larry's snare drum that's the dominant hook. Right. And 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 thank goodness Larry uh, decided to use click track. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> For this album. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I also I love the arrangement of uh, the introduction to this song and 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 like you, I mean, I, I did love the song. I never got sick of the song, even though I've heard it, I don't know, hundreds of times. Yeah. But in preparing for the podcast, you know, and 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 really taking a, a close listen, I was really knocked out by how well thought out the song was, particularly the um for me, the introduction, um, yeah. the instrument setup the of the visual, you know, starting with that rat-a-tat-tat of the snare drum, which is like machine gun fire, you know. Yeah, and that haunting violin from Steve Wickham. I mean, we're in a whole different realm before Bono even opens his mouth. Right, right. Um, and it, looking at that that violin, you know, that first single note, it sounds like a gun ricochet overhead. Yeah. Um, and then we have Edge with that insistent arpeggio, then Bono commenting on the scene, I can't believe the news today, I can't close my eyes and make it go away. And only then do we have ba- Adam's bass part that arrives with that single boom then we have a pause before the central theme the question of the song arrives how long was me sing this song and then finally the instruments and the vocals are in lockstep you know and this is just the introduction and it's brilliant yeah and how about edge's background vocals i mean they're almost like a co-lead i just love those ah after those how long how long leading to the tonight tonight let's listen to that part actually it's one of my favorites Now, Melody, I actually, for as much as people talk about this being a political song, I just, I don't really see it as a political song, at least in its original incarnation. Uh, but it is arguably the most carefully considered protest song of all time, maybe. Mm. Um, it, it would be co-opted as something more over time, but consider it purposely avoids pointing a finger at British troops or the IRA or the UDA. Instead, it's a plea to the Irish to let go of the past and, and, and find a pathway forward. Because if you continue to be a victim of the cycle of hatred, you'll be stuck there forever, which is what that first verse is all about. I mean, the broken bottles under children's feet. I mean, you know, these images of dead end streets having your back against the wall. This is what he's on about, you know, the conditioning and weaponizing of past grievances. Let's listen. And again, you really can't say enough about Steve Wickham's violin. I just love during the breaks between verses, he adds those choppy accents against Larry's martial beat. You really feel yourself, again, using your your term, in lockstep with those marching feet. Right. And, you know, his his violin, like like you're saying, it brings so much to the song. And then it also injects this Irishness, right? You know, I mean, it's it's in an, a less obvious way than the Ulian pipes of October's Tomorrow um, do, but it's an Irishness all the same. Um, you know, and as an aside, I really do love the story of how Steve Wickham becomes involved with the album in the first place. 
Um, you know, the story goes that he approaches Edge at a bus stop um, at, randomly and asks him if you two had any need for a violin on their next album. Um, and I, I got to point out the the obvious thing here, right? That after two albums and two world tours, Edge has taken the bus to get around. You know? <laughs> love it. Love I it. <laughs> so, but I mean, there's there's almost a provincial and fashionable element here. And I mean, and I mean that in a good way, you know, about the story. Right. <laughs> totally. Um, now, Melody, if you'll indulge me, this next verse, the second verse, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on it. I mean, not just the lyrics, but how Edge starts with that Mick Jones staccato on the first two lines, then changing to the picking notes, at which point Wickham's violin enters after the impassioned plea but tell me who has won? I mean, it's just sublime. You gotta listen. I mean, the music and the lyrics are tighter, right? They're more direct than anything the band has done before. Um, I mean, Bono's lyrics still contain that imagistic um, strength that they had on Boy in October. But here, the, the images of broken bottles under children's feet and trenches dug within hearts. I mean, it, it, it's embedded within a cohesive story that moves from the first person, reluctant and shocked observer uh, watching the news to a participant um, and conscientious objector to the violence um, in I Won't Heed the Battle Call. Um, and, and then it moves on to directly addressing and commenting on the listener's reaction to the horrific events with wiping the tears from your eyes. And finally, to the shared disassociation and the violence um, with it's true we are immune when fact it's fiction and TV reality. Um, you know, there were hints of this level of storytelling on October and I fall down in stranger in a strange land, but I mean, this is just a massive leap forward. No question. And you know, where the quoting of scripture on October, at least to me, felt exclusionary here on Sunday, Bloody Sunday and on other songs on war, the biblical appropriations are less obvious and are well woven into the lyrics. I mean, we've got Matthew, um, mother's children, brothers, sisters torn apart. And in a twist on Corinthians, we've got weed and drink while tomorrow they die instead of let us, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Um, then in the middle part, a little Isaiah with that wipe your tears away, wipe your bloodshot eyes. And finally, stop holding on to hatred so that we may claim the victory Jesus won. You know, well, Bill, quoting Bible verses is usually my shtick. I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It makes me really happy that you did. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, ultimately, the song has a very Christian worldview. I guess you can see it as when we stop holding on to the hatred 
um, that's when we can claim this victory that Jesus won. Um, but I've always seen the resolution to the senseless violence and the way to unity lies in the mystery of Jesus's resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, but there's room here, of course, for multiple interpretations. Which is what we were talking about, you know, you and I off off mic. This is a band that that has not left behind their convictions, um, but they've learned, you know, to disseminate the message um, in a more wise manner, let's say. Um, But um, as I said, they've left behind, you know, associations from, you know, fellowship, sect, religion, but they're still deeply rooted as we talked before about, um, you know, the the actual Jesus that they recognize. Um, And that's where I think that the growth here is, is most pronounced. Right, I, I agree, and it's it's interesting to me because it's it's a band that, as as you were saying, they've become smarter, um, and more inclusive in their yeah. message. But it's also, you know, if you're talking about a Christian message and conveying a Christian message and trying to get one um, across, um, there's a Bible verse that says um, that one should be as gentle as a dove and as shrewd as a serpent. Mm-hmm. And there I think this is very very shrewd way of injecting that message in a universal theme. And again, I would remind it's not so much political. Uh, this, the, in fact, this whole record it it it's it has obviousness in that it's speaking outward. But the real crux of the message is always, you know, what what is the human heart's you know part in 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 this uh, battle, as it were. I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We got something called seconds. such a groovy bass part <laughs> it really is you know I, I have to tell you i i love i love everything about this song mm-hmm. um larry's opening boomy kick drum and edges jaunty acoustic rhythm guitar and like you said adam's groovy bass um i you know and i really like the close um um but blue note tinged harmony on say goodbye that lyric um mm-hmm. I, I love the black humor and the cleverness in the lyric which I think this might be the first time where you can say clever lyric <laughs> and you too in the same breath. I think um, you're right. <laughs> you know, and then coolest of all, of course, is we get that lead vocal from, from Edge. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, what I guess you can call it the Cold War ditty. Um, yeah. It's got that great juxtaposition from being kind of fun and funky um, and the lyrics focused on the madness of um, uh, impending nuclear war. I mean, you know, you know, I'm growing up during the 1970s. Um, I mean, I can remember um, as a very little kid doing that duck and cover drill. Remember under the school desk? I don't know. Did you do that? Um, well, there's nothing funny about that. I mean, <laughs> I I learned how to stay safe from a, a nuclear bomb under that desk. I mean, I would have never thought of that. Because <laughs> that would have worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, but that's the thing, right? With the threat of the bomb. I mean, it, it's such something you just lived with and you kind of had to laugh about it. I mean, you yeah, I mean, survive. it's. 
Oh, totally. I mean, it's 1983. You couldn't get away from hearing about Reagan and Gorbachev and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Gallo's humor was a coping device for us, right. you know, growing up. Um, I also wanted to say, I mean, I know a lot of people have suggested the lines, you know, they're doing the atomic bomb. Do they know where the dance comes from? And I think that's um, from label mate trouble funks drop the bomb. Uh, let me just lay this on you. I think it goes deeper. I, I actually always thought it harkens back to the kids' song Ring Around the Rosie, you know, which had its roots in the, you know, the desolation of the plague. They're casting it in modern times to serve a warning that not, you know, nuclear proliferation could result the same way. Hmm. I really never thought about that, but I groove on that interpretation. Mm. Actually, right. that's, that's pretty cool. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, for me, it's hard to pick, but I think my favorite bit of the lyrics is um, in the verse where Bono takes over the singing, you know, that that crazy depiction of uh, nuclear bombs being made in a New York apartment um, and that there's no escape from the madness wherever in the world you go, USSR, DDR, London, New York, Peking. Um, yeah. And then ending with that great line, it's the puppets that pull the strings, you know, the, the cat is out of the bag, right? Um, there's yeah. no controlling this insane thing that, that's been started. No, totally. Um, and of course, we also have the way ahead of its time sampling of the 1981 documentary film Soldier Girls, which Bono said he was watching while at Windmill Lane while they were recording. Um, it is especially chilling. I mean, hearing that call and response of kill, 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 you know, with the army sergeant and the female recruits. What's also interesting hearing, I don't know if you've ever heard, they've they, they've dug up, you know, the full part of the movie uh, and the part where they edit it out. It actually goes, I want to go to Iran. I want to kill an Iranian between the lines of danger and the blood part. Have you ever heard that? I haven't actually. No. Here, well, let's take a listen. All right. <laughs> Crazy, huh? That's very creepy. <laughs> but I think it, they were smart because it it places it too much in its time, and yeah, you know, which Bob Dylan was always great at never making his protest songs too attached, you know, to one time. I think, you know, I think it's something that Bono was definitely paying attention to here. Right. Um, so I think sure. that was wise. Um, but overall, this is a great song, great second track. It is, and it's underrated. So I'm I'm glad Agreed. we're acknowledging Agreed. its greatness. Yeah, totally. All right. So where are we going next? We're going to another of their great songs, <laughs> New Year's mm -hmm. Day.
I've got to be honest. Um, I had gotten so sick <laughs> of this song over the past few decades. I mean, I, I've heard Sunday Bloody Sunday almost as much, and I still love it. But this one, you know, I really wasn't looking forward to, <laughs> to even listening to this one again. I, um, I, and let me just say that I think a lot of hardcore fans share those feelings. Yeah. Uh, I know that I did. But right. But miraculously, and, and we had talked about this, um, I, I think enough time has passed and I could at least again hear why I had initially loved the song so much. Um, but I have to say the song for me, it's it is so tied up in the live set, um, particularly musically, where Edge is switching back and forth between um, piano and guitar. I swear in my mind's eye, I always imagine it being recorded that way, <laughs> only though I it wasn't right. um anyway so edge's work here i mean it's it's so cinematic uh particularly the chugging guitar and the emotional solo um that creates and punctuates this stark landscape of bono's lyrics and of course there's adam you know that great and iconic bass part that drives the song throughout yeah it's a happy accident um adam tries to play the riff to visages fade to gray he can't pull it off and he stumbles onto literally one of the great bass riffs ever, mm -hmm. feeling one of U2's most enduring songs. <laughs> I mean, um, and for all the talk of stripping away the band's sound, you know, Steve Lillywhite, I have to give him props. He still manages to craft an incredibly ambient and unique, unique sound for that piano riff. I honestly have never heard a piano sound like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's so vibrant, alive, electric. Um, and not to mention Edge's guitar, it, it sounds just visceral. Um, that solo I really think is one of his best. Um, and what I don't know what you call it, but like talk about something that's been uh ripped off, you know, that little, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, how many people have stolen that, right? And, and just and again back to that solo i mean every note is chosen so methodically you know i remember you know the first time i even saw that solo i mean and, and every time like that's the one thing that always I, no matter how many times i hear it and get and i did get sick of it that solo really is it really cuts deep for me i, I one of his best definitely in yeah. fact let's listen to that part <laughs> Lyrically, um, I know the story, the song is inspired by Lech Walesa, the, the leader of the Polish solidarity movements, rest and separation from his wife, um, which happens during the Polish Communist Party's imposition of martial law. But, you know, I, I mean, I have to say, I mean, that's not what I think of when I hear the song. Um, I see it as a song about love set against struggle. And of course, this is what makes for great drama in a universal sense. And here we have it as lovers who are kept by apart by some sort of conflict. Um, it's longing, 
universal stuff. And I think it's the key to this song's appeal. Um, you know, there's the lyrics, I will be with you again, though torn in two, we can be one. Totally. I mean, all you have to hear is, I want to be with you, be with you night and day. Nothing changes on New Year's Day. And I will be with you again. I mean, these are such great universal phrases, you know, that cross over to casual listeners. And like it or not, that's what makes for enduring pop classics. I mean, Bono really is now a, a real lyricist here. I mean, these are, you just grab onto these. Agreed. Agreed. And I mean, I think that that might be one of the reasons why this song becomes a hit, because mm -hmm. it's certainly an unusual pop song. Um, but, you know, for me, I think that the standout lyrical image of the whole album is here on this song. Under a blood red sky, a crowd has gathered in black and white. Arms yeah. entwine the chosen few. Newspaper said say it's true. Under a Um, and I think that, you know, at, at once this wraps up the horror of war in the blood red sky, the resistance and strength of the crowd of a chosen few with their arms entwined. And then also the disassociation um, of the implied bystander um, reading about war in a newspaper or watching it on TV, um, you know, and, and again, I mean, it, the, another thing that it does is it also provides this great color scheme um, that we see on the album co cover and subsequently on the tour. Yeah, for sure. U2 has arrived. You know, Sunday Bloody Sunday is a crowning achievement. New Year's Day is kind of like that, the crossover appeal, you know, to the average punter out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Agreed. Uh, but it doesn't get as going so well on this next song, does it? Well, not in my opinion. <laughs> All right, let's listen. Like a song. Yeah, I, I think this is a song that meant a lot more to me when I was 17. You know, I was, I was drawn to, you know, like the big declarations and, you know, the, you know, the, the drew lines were, you know, showing who, who was us and who was them. You know, like, like, I guess I was attracted to that at the time, but, um, you know, listening again now, it does feel one dimensional. Um, it hasn't aged all that well. It's got some structure issues, like the greatest hook of the song only appears once. You know, that one part, you know, is there nothing left? You know, and, and Edge's guitar sounds great right there. Great riff, you know, the drums drop out, great drama. But for some reason, it never happens again. And, you know, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> so actually, let's listen to that one part. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't think it's a particularly good song. Um, I don't think it goes anywhere interesting musically, although, I mean, I do like the rock and jam <laughs> that's going on at the end of the song. Um, and I mean, the lyrics, um, I mean, I do get that it's about nihilism, the nihilism of the British press and, um, 
you know, po- post-punk tribalism. But I mean, it's it's preachy. It's it's over the top. Um, the lyrics don't feel particularly original, um, and they're they're kind of clunky. Um, you know, what angry words won't stop the fight. Two wrongs won't make it right. A new heart is what I need. Oh God, make it bleed. Um, and it, you know, like you said, Bill. I mean, I think that it had meaning in its moment. Um, but I really do think this is uh, a version of uh, the self-righteous, finger-pointing Bono um, that maybe some of the haters would recognize. Yeah. Um, unlike you, I, I, I even have to pile on at the end. I, I, I'm not, I don't love the end. Um, I guess they were so enamored of the big drum sound, they decided to spotlight it at the kind of unnecessarily long coda. I mean, overall, just the whole song feels a little too long. And and I have to say, listening to it, it, it I, I got listener fatigue. I mean, it's a bit bludgeoning, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. So I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good that's a good word for this. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's of the time. Um, it probably meant something, but it, it not not so much resonating for me anymore. All right. So I guess we're moving on. It's shite. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna go to something a little different and quite extraordinary, and it's called Drowning Man. You know, in, in the original format of the album, um, this song brought a quieted tone to the end of side one of the album. Um, I, I think it's beautiful. It's haunting. It's it's really, it's one of my favorites, not just on the album, but um, in U2's catalog in, in total. Um, I love the quiet of Larry's brushes, um, edges punctuating, acoustic guitar strumming, um, and the lovely and evocative violin part by Steve Wickham. But, you know, I mean, we've got to talk about Adam here. <laughs> I mean, where mm-hmm. does this amazing bass part even come from? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the song it's, it's in four, four time. Um, but I really think Adam's part is in six, eight. I was trying to count it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, it just ends up being magical um, together. The music, it just combines into this just overall lush swell, you know? Yeah, I mean, we we share this the love of this song. Um, it's it, for me the most underappreciated song in the whole U two canon. Certainly one of the greatest productions on any U two song. Definitely in my personal top five. Um, great vocal by Bono. Um, the way he uses the lower register early in the song. Uh, I will echo you. Love the Larry's brushes. Uh, edge on the acoustic, Steve Wickham adding this kind of cool Eastern influence on a counter melody, uh, this huge orchestral accented floor toms in that great moment. You run, boom, you running, boom, you running. 
I mean, like, that is an absolutely genius moment. In fact, I'm going to make you listen to it <laughs> right here. <laughs> Oh man, I love these lyrics. Um, I love how they weave between the physical and the spiritual. Um, I mean, you know, they, they could be words from a friend, the lover, a parent, um, from God. Um, they're cajoling you know, this lost soul to come back to safety, to dry land. Um, I mean, my personal interpretation has always mostly landed on the lyrics as words of love and encouragement from God to that struggling soul. Um, you know, the, the lines take my hand, you know, I'll be there. If you can, I'll cross the sky for your love. Um, for me, I mean, that evokes God's sacrifice, I guess, from, of his son, Jesus for the sins of the world. Um, and then of course there are the lines lifted from the book of Isaiah, um, chapter 40. Um, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary. So it's been suggested among many theories that, uh, you know, this is Bono himself or casting God here speaking to a lost soul. But the question is, is the lost soul Adam? What do you think? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, you know. I mean, I think that in, it, when you listen to interviews of the band at the time, um, you know, Adam was doing a lot of partying. I, I think, I, you know, was it excessive partying for being a young guy in a rock and roll band? I don't know. But I, I think it pers it probably was excessive to the abstaining members. So maybe they were worried about him. I mean, but there's so much love in this song. But I guess, maybe. but I guess what I wanted to say was like, when you put it in context of, you remember, Bono admits that they had grown apart through this sort of schism or whatever, you know, with Shalom and, and they've come out of this. And, you know, of course, he he asked Adam to be his best man. So obviously there was there was a, a reconnection or, a, you know, it's not just an olive branch, but there is a genuine, you know, kind of like mending going on. So and obviously this is a song that would have been written very shortly after that. So, you know, even if it is, you know, perhaps presumptuous, um, a part of me wants to believe it, I guess, and, and not in a judgmental way, but like a truly a loving friendship way. Sure. You know, that that we have reestablished, you know, this bond that that has existed so strongly from the beginning, and that we we will move forward from this point. Um, and that you know, this is a very bono thing to do if it is true. You know what I mean? Sure. Like to to use song, to use art. You know, and 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 again, quoting scripture, but not in a way that's so heavy handed and and only one way to interpret it. It's to me, I, I mean, you know, I just, I can't say enough about this song. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I guess the only thing that one could say, um, you know, I mean, the, the haters could certainly point uh, to Bono wanting to play God here <laughs> um, and taking on the, that authoritative voice. But I don't know. I mean, I think that as we've kind of been talking about, there's so much gentleness, there's so much compassion in these words that I do think that would just be missing the point um and, and the love that's imbued in the song comes across with such purity of intent um i mean you know it's a song about unconditional love and reassurance and i don't and that doesn't come along very often and then <laughs> oh, <man>. our next song 
<laughs> you introduced this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Refugee. Let's listen. Okay, so I guess we're moving from one of their best to one of their worst. <laughs> right. you know, um, for me, um, this song is in the bottom 10 of all U2 songs. Uh, the only good thing I've got to say about this song is uh, I really groove on Edge's hardcore backing vocal, though. Whoa, whoa. I, I, I like that part. Um, okay. Musically, though. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> oh, man. I think this sounds like a U2 cover band doing an impression of U2 doing a new wave pop song with a breezy island flair. That's Ooh. how I describe this song. Oh, my God. That's an amazing. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think I can hear that. OK. <laughs> and, and let me go on. <laughs> oh, please, please don't let me stop you. So um, so there's the lyrics, right? They're awful. Mm. This period. They are awful. Um, I mean, to be fair, though. OK, let me back up. I know Bono's 22 when he writes the song. And this is all also the early 1980s, which wasn't exactly the most enlightened period of time. But man, yikes. Uh, the refugee and her family, they're painted as pawns in this white man's world. Nobody has any agency. Mama doesn't. Mm -hmm. Papa doesn't. Um, the pretty faced refugee doesn't. Um, <laughs> Let me continue. You know, I mean, Bono, he 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 has proved himself, I think. No, he has proved himself to have become a feminist right later yeah. in his life. But in de describing the refugee herself, uh, what he's using is a bunch of semi sexist tropes. Here yeah. she is. She's poor. She's pretty faced. She's innocent. She's this native woman. There's kind of this whiff of sexualized eroticism where she's coming back to keep you, who I guess is some white American dude, <laughs> company. All right. I've said my piece. I, I don't even need to say anything more about that. I think you've covered it. But so let me just take it from another direction. Now you'll laugh, but do you remember this song? It came out about the same time. It was played the video a thousand billion times. I eat cannibals. I think yeah, it's called a bag called Total Cold. <laughs> Coelho, I think it Coelho, was. Coelho, yes. Yeah, yeah. Which, so I don't know. Maybe that just ruined it for me. Um, also, do you get a hint of like the police with that closing chant of, hey, oh, hey, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, remember, what was it? Like, Regatta de Blanc or maybe every little thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A little yeah. bit of that stuff. I don't know. Uh, whatever it is, it doesn't add up too much. Um, I mean, at best, I, I kind of like the verse, you know, the one with Papa go to war, he's going to fight, but he don't know what for. I mean, okay. Overall, you know, this, what are we, what were they thinking? I no. There you go. The word is anything, no. anything. <laughs> I, I've got nothing more. All right. We can just agree. This, this song just feels out of place. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> Two art speed is one. Let's take a listen.
All right, here's another huge contribution from Adam. I mean, it's I think it's his riff that's driving this tune. Um, I'd say Edge is adding what I call more of a complimentary part, but I love that he, you know, he's like letting in some, you know, funk influence, kind of that sort of urbane kind of New York influence, I guess. Um, Larry, you know, again, I got to give it to him. And he's he's leading the charge here. The band is cooking. Um, great performance with the exception in points of Bono. Um, definitely some great lines he delivers, but they're in a key that's not really his wheelhouse. He sounds a bit strained, but again, there are great moments. Um, how about you? Yeah, uh, before I talk about the song, though, um, I just wanted to to point out that this is the second single that's released from War. Um, right. The B-side of which is Endless Deep, right. uh, which is that great bass-driven mid-tempo uh, number. Um, right, love it. Yeah, and, and it's it's a mostly instrumental song, as you know. And did you know? Um, you, I'm sure you do now, but I didn't at the time. Um, that that is the uh, only song that Adam Clayton sings lead vocal on, such as they are. I I did not know at the time. That's something you know. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> right. Later on, after the fact, yeah. It's kind of cool and interesting. Yeah. Um, but back to. Uh, Two Hearts Beat is one. I mean, you know, yeah, I I agree. I think it's a solid song. Um, It's a bit dated, um, but musically it's fun (laughs) for you too. It's quite a dancey song. Um, And I think that this is U2's first straight up love song, right? Yeah, and leave it to them to make it a complicated one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's not exactly your silly love song. No, no. Um, you know, here we have um, uh, the singer who's both madly in love and at the same time on the verge of some sort of um, failure or life collapse. Uh, maybe it's Bono worrying about, uh, you know, that after this song, after this album, there won't be um, uh, enough interest to keep the band from being dropped from Island Records. No, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think this is, that, especially that can't stop to dance. This is my last chance. I think that absolutely his mind is drifting <laughs> from his yeah. honeymoon <laughs> and he, and he's worried about what's coming <laughs> this big do or die moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think that um, it's an interesting state to describe, you know, this uh, being madly in love and, and impending doom, right? Yeah. I think it's quite cool. Um, and I, I think that all of the insecurity and and that deep love can be heard, heard in that rather swoony line. Um, they say I'm a fool. They say I'm nothing. But if I'm a fool for you, that's something. Man, that spoke to my 15-year-old heart. Let, let me tell you. And I have to, I'll tell you, Bill, um, my sister and my brother-in-law, they included that line on their wedding invitations. They must have thought it was swoony too, um, but they were also very young and in love and certainly had an uncertain financial future at the time. So it, it suited them. Did not know that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, like I, like I said, I mean, there's points in which Bono is uh, overreaching, but yeah, that I, I do agree. I, I love that line. Say I'm a fool. I mean that line there. That's that really cuts in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I, that's one of my favorite parts too. Um, overall, a good track, but I, again, I, I would say this is one that 
probably doesn't resonate for me like it used to. And, you know, maybe the band kind of figured that out too. I, I think it dropped from the set list pretty quickly after this tour, only making occasional appearances. Um, that's my dog walking in, if you heard that. Mm -hmm. Click, click, click on the hardwood floor. <laughs> I love the toenail sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not editing that out, by the way. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. I um, so what's your what, what's the takeaway here on Two Hearts? Yeah, it's it's solid. It's good. A little dated. Yeah. 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 All right. But good, good track. Good track. Yeah. Uh, unlike this next one. <laughs> um, red light. Let's red take a light. listen. I, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting experiment, um, but overall, this one is a miss for me. Uh, I don't think it quite comes together. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think the lyrics are kind of vague. Um, we only get clues to the songs meeting. I mean, there's the title. So <laughs> we're in a red light district, I would imagine. <laughs> um, we've got Adam's funky bass and that jazzy trumpet part um, from Kenny Fredley, um, who at the time was playing with Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Um, so both these things, they place it in New York. Um, and then there's Edge's almost, I don't know, a mono note solo, which I do think is kind of cool. And I think that it does provide this feeling of anxiety. Um, Bono's melody line in the verses um, and that reach for the falsetto, you know, they're also kind of interesting. Um, but again, I mean, just overall, I think it, it really is more of a sketch. Then, yeah. Yeah. I, well, it's 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 better than Refugee. How about that? <laughs> it is better than Refugee, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think both those two are kind of the half-baked, more vibe songs. Um, I, I really don't love the coconuts on here or on Surrender. I mean, it just sounds a little gimmicky. The horns don't add much either for me. Um, I do like two bits. I like Bono's vocal on the second verse. I always lower on the first lines and then climbs up to there's really one great line that's fantastic that alone in the spotlight, you know, of this yeah. your own tragedy. I like that a lot. Um, in fact, let's let's listen to that part. I also like that break um, that has some nice momentum, um, you know, da -da -da, da -da -da, da -da -da, you know, and that's a, the, 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 the instruments are kind of echoing that. In fact, let's listen. Yes. Yeah. Let's listen to that too. Indulge me. <laughs> But yeah, this and Refugee are pretty much the two blemishes on an otherwise pretty great record. Um, you got anything else on this one? Nope, I really don't. <laughs> yeah, let's move on <laughs> uh, to the aforementioned Surrender. Surrender. 
dare I say it, Melody? Do we have a song you can dance to? <laughs> um, listen to Hearts. Um, it does kind of move and groove. Um, really love the slide work by Edge that leads into the choruses. Um, but as I mentioned before, ugh, I do not like the coconuts on the chorus. No reason to even be there. Um, uh, it's like mm, some fussiness production-wise. I think you'll have something to say about that. Uh, lyrically, Bono's doing another nice bit of third-person storytelling. Like I think you mentioned, I Fall Down and Stranger in a Strange Line. It's, it's a nice job here on that. Um, probably the most memorable, memorable verse is the uh, try to be a good girl and a good wife, raise a good family, lead a good life, not good enough. Got herself up on the fourth or eighth floor. Going to find out, find out what she's living for. I think they could probably do better than me, so let's just listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I do, I love this song live, um, uh, but the version on the album, for me, I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, you know, like you were saying, fussy, right? I think that's a good word for it. It, it feels overproduced, kind of cluttered. Um, you know, we've got sound effects and cowbells and, and as you mentioned, the coconuts backing vocals, um, especially the Papa sing my, sing my, sing my song. I mean, yeah, I, I just, why is that there? Why, why is that there? Yeah, yeah, that's the question. I don't know. Um, and and even you mentioned Edge's kind of that silky slide guitar, which is really my favorite part. But it kind of, for me, it got buried here in the recorded version. And yeah, because it's so glorious live. It Exactly. It has room yeah. to breathe, right? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, but like you were saying about Bono's ly lyrics, I think they really shine here. I mean, it's an interesting open-ended story, which I really like about Sadie. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, the characters, uh, oh gosh, we'll talk about the refugee one more time. The, the characters are very cartoon-like. Here, there's a lot of flesh on the bone um, of someone who's gotten lost in a city filled with lovers and lies. You know, there's, of course, that that verse that, that you mentioned, um, which I think is really interesting. But what I really like about it is I like that uncertainness of what happens to Sadie yeah. you know, in her moment of decision on the 48th floor. I mean, does she jump? Does she figure it out? Right. We don't right. really know, um, which I like. Um, and then we get that corresponding story afterwards of the singer who is also enticed by the city, who could also maybe be consumed by it. Um, and then that interesting conclusion, right, that the only way out is to surrender, um, to die to yourself. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's a very Christian concept um, that in order to be free, you need to let go of selfish desires um, to be reborn and, and putting it in that Christian worldview would be um, uh, to be reborn in a search for God's truth. brief sidebar i don't know if you remember this but you were the one who kind of told me what that whole concept was about dying to oneself 
I thought it was just an interesting lyric and you kind of gave me the background. Um, I think I used that on a song of my own later. <laughs> um, love the sing-along part on the coda, kind of like the outro to Gloria. we're good there um unless you got something else on surrender i don't i don't um but i'm i'm looking forward to talking about the, the closing song that's for sure and that would be 40 let's listen So after two albums of um, not having the best closing songs, uh, we get this this amazing conclusion to the record. Um, I mean, forty it's a, a it's a plaintive prayer that bookends the question asked in Sunday Bloody Sunday: um, How long to sing this song? Um, how long will we need to endure these physical, emotional, and spiritual conflicts that the rest of the songs on the album are about? You know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think most of us know the story. The band needs one more song for war. They've gone all night. Another band is clamoring to get in, which I've always wondered if it really was true or just made for a good story. I mean, you're the biggest band in Ireland and some punters calling themselves minor detail. Who <laughs> are demanding the studio? Piss off. I mean, come on. Um, anyway, um, kind of contrary to the story, they didn't just make up the music at least, but Bono certainly cobbled the lyrics, um, from Psalm 40 and it all got done in 40 minutes. Kind of not entirely true. Um, Steve Lillywhite says they, you know, they had laid down the framework for the music earlier and he trimmed away the flab, but yes, Bono did take the lyrics from 40 and they, he did do a quick vocal and that was it. Yeah, I, I've always loved that rushed recording story, though. Oh, mystical, sorry. But, you know, how, however truthful it is. <laughs> right, um, right, right. But regardless, you know, um, magical, right? I, I mean, I think that's the word for this song. Um, and it goes on to be even more so when it's played live. Yeah. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, of course, it's taken from Psalms 40. Um, and I have to say, though, I was always struck by one small but uh, fairly significant liberty that Bono takes with the bible verse mm -hmm. um verse three of the chapter actually goes um he put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our god many will see and fear the lord and put his trust in him um yeah. you know and of course bono changes that word from fear to hear uh, right which i think is putting emphasis on god's love and approachability and you know i have to say that that's a small edit that really never bothered me Forty would, you know, it would close every show on the war tour, the Unforgettable Fire tour, the Joshua Tree tour. 
Um, but here is the closing track on war. It's elegiac. It's a hymn, as he would want to say, mm-hmm. and a great bookend, as he said, to Sunday Bloody Sunday, tying it all together. And I would agree. And it's probably the greatest closing track on any U2 record. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were saying you, you kind of feel sorry for U2 fans who would have never have seen them do 40. I really do. I, I really I, I do feel badly because, I mean, it is it was such a communal moment for fans it was so iconic i think that bono has actually talked about that his love for this song um and how many amazing sights that he saw because of this song it it was transcendent truly i mean that all sounds very naive and and you know maybe silly but i i think that everybody bought in the band the audience everyone bought into this moment of um i don't know beauty and togetherness during the song no doubt Well, that is an LP called War. So, Bill, what's your takeaway on war? Well, on a personal level, war will always be tied to my 17-year-old self. I mean, one of those albums that arrives at the right moment and gives you exactly what you need. And I remember thinking when I first heard it, you know, this sense that, you know, I was sharing something with this cult of freaks who we all found something profound that spoke to us. And especially seeing them on this tour, which we'll get to shortly. As for the album itself, listening to it now, I would say War is not quite a masterpiece, but it's close. Uh, There's certainly masterful moments as good as anything on Joshua Tree and uh, Octane Baby. And War finally gives some tangible evidence. U2 is capable of achieving true greatness. And at this make it or break it moment, they delivered the goods when they absolutely had to. And everything that will catapult them to superstardom in just a few years and cement a, a lasting legacy comes into clear view on War in the subsequent tour. And this is where they become, I would say, the version of you 2 most people conjure up when they close their eyes or damn close to it. And yet, War, the War Tour, and by extension, uh, Under Blood Red Sky, which we'll touch on also, uh, is an end of sorts. By the end of the War Tour, they will have taken U2 Mach 1 as far as they can. Right, yeah. Um I mean, I know that Boy October and War, and as you said, by extension under Blood Red Sky, are considered the first phase of the band. But I would argue that War is the first demarcation point, Um, you know, the first time the band reinvents themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, What it does have in common with Boy in October is it's released by a band that has more promise than popularity. Um, But it's moved from the atmospheric, shimmering silver guitar tones and wide-eyed inward examination of childhood and innocence to aggressive rock and roll. Um, Particularly remarkable at a time when the powers that be in the British press say that guitar-driven rock music is irrelevant, it's dead. Yeah. Um, And at the same time, YouTube begins to lean into their Irishness, and this is during the midst of the second British invasion. Um, and, you know, I mean, in hindsight, it was a smart move to separate themselves from the crowd, but it was also very risky. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, but listen, here's one thing I was going to lay on you. I mean, I think a lot of bands get to the position you 2 was at 
at the end of the war tour and they say, ah, we figured out the winning formula. Lock that in, dog. And we're sipping Cristal and limos for the next decade, <laughs> right? I mean, it would have been reasonable after October had flopped. And they almost got dropped by Island for you two to capitalize on the success of war and under Blood Red Sky and stay the course and just make war two. I mean, why put your career back in jeopardy? Uh, but you two had other ideas. And I totally agree with you. This is the first of several instances, you two's uh, restlessness and almost maniacal drive that will prompt them to reinvent themselves, which is incredibly rare. Right. And I, I agree with that. And, you know, there's something else that that, that I kind of wanted to point out, too. Um, I mean, at this point, the band are still not masters of their instruments, but they certainly have gotten their feet under themselves as musicians at this point. And here they begin to truly work on song craft, you know, and focus on the structure of songs instead of just solely on the spirit and the feeling of songs. Um, and the payoff is huge, right? I mean, right. in the enduring, enduring classics of Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day. And also the three brilliant deep cuts, Seconds, Drowning Man, and 40. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the highs on this album are so high, they almost make you forget about the experiments that don't work and haven't aged well. But nearly a third of the album falls into that category. You know, you've got the two big clunkers, um, Red Light and The Refugee, which we certainly mm. have beaten up on a lot. Yeah, um, that was kind of fun, actually. It was, <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> um, and, you know, and also for me, Surrender, um, which becomes a great live song. Um, uh, but here it suffers from overproduction. Mm. Um, you know, and Bill, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the live versions of these songs. And, and we're going to do some exploring on that aspect of the album in more depth during part two of our exploration of the War album and subsequent tour. Melody, uh, are you saying we've got a two-parter on our hands? Uh, <laughs> we've arrived. Now, Melody, what are we going to be on about in this part two you speak of? Well, I was thinking um, yes. we're going to be taking a look at the critical and the commercial reaction to the album and the subsequent tour um, that will take the band into quite rarefied air. And that didn't even sound like you were reading that. <laughs> um, but but can we please talk about that crazy show we both saw at the L.A. Sports Arena? Please. I think we have to. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> so join us next time on Into the Heart of YouTube podcast. Until then. 